0: Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the medical director and senior consultant with Greenfield Health System in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the Medical Director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead.
1: Great. And thank you, John. Greetings, to everyone, and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name again is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve the clinical practice and patient care that we deliver. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being March 19th. The article for that call will be, Improving Patient Safety by Taking Systems Seriously. Please plan to join us. Several organizations have made author in the room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Mark Pletcher, first author of the article, Trends in Opioid Prescribing by Race, Ethnicity for Patients Seeking Care in U.S. Emergency Departments. Um, which was published in the January 2nd article of JAMA. Dr. Pletcher is an assistant adjunct professor, Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. Uh, Dr. Pletcher received his undergraduate degree from Harvard College, his medical degree from UCSF in San Francisco, and his master's degree in public health from the University of California in Berkeley. He completed his internship, residency, and clinical research fellowship at UCSF in the Division of General Internal Medicine. He maintains a secondary appointment and an active clinical practice in the Department of Medicine as well. Dr. Pletcher, welcome.
2: Thanks. Looking forward to the discussion this morning.
1: Thank you for joining us. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Pletcher's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on his article. The purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from an author about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Pletcher and I will help you translate what is in his paper into changes applicable in practice. Here's how the call will proceed. Dr. Pletcher will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. I will then take a few minutes to draw out some implications for a real-world practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of health care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also offering your experience in this area will be helpful to the call. There are approximately 45 lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Pletcher, who will provide an overview of his recent article. Dr. Pletcher, please proceed.
2: All right. So um, yeah, I thought I would, I guess, start by summarizing um, what uh, what our goals were and what we um, how we how we collected our data and uh, what we found. So we we actually started. Uh, with a grant to look at opiate prescribing patterns in the u s um, actually part of the rationale for that was looking at um, at uh, the uh, the emerging epidemic and prescription opiate abuse and uh, During our sort of survey of the of the data, we found um, this um, this race ethnic disparity in prescribing in the emergency department that we then uh, focused on for this analysis. So we used, um, for for the study, we used uh, a national survey called the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, which is a uh, nationally representative uh, sample of um, all U.S. Uh, emergency department visits uh, that's done every year. Uh, and we used um, these surveys going back to 1993, up to 2005, to look at... Um, trends in opiate prescribing um, for patients presenting with pain. So for each of these, these visits, the, the National Invitatory Medical Care Survey does um, collects a lot of information, um, including a lot of demographic information, uh, reasons for visits that the, that the patients um, uh, report. Um, we have physician diagnoses. Uh, we have some procedures and other things that are done during the visit. Um, including what medications they are prescribed. So we um, fairly simply just um, uh, focused on the visits in which one of the reasons for visits was uh, pain, pain of uh, of any sort. And uh, we looked then at, at um, whether or not the patient was prescribed an opiate during the visit um, or not. And we looked at the, the trend in that proportion over time, and by race and ethnicity. And what we found, we found some sort of expected findings. Uh, We know sort of from other uh, sources that um, opiates are being prescribed more frequently uh, over this uh, sort of last decade and a half. And in fact, we found uh, a trend of increasing use of opiates for patients uh, presenting with pain. That is going from around uh, 23% of these visits to around 37% of visits um, uh, were uh, at which an opiate was prescribed from 1993 to 2005, and that corresponds, as as many of you all know, with a fairly significant national efforts to uh, improve the quality of um, of care for patients with pain by the Joint Commission and uh, and others. Uh, So that was good, we thought, but um, the the unexpected finding was uh, this gap by race and ethnicity. And uh, so so we found that that white patients presenting with pain are um, more uh, likely to receive an opiate medication uh, than other race-ethnic groups, uh, particularly than African-Americans and also Latinos. Uh, And that disparity um, did not seem to uh, narrow at all with time, even with the increasing use of opiates in general, which we were somewhat surprised about. Um, So we looked, you know, the first question is, of course, you know, is there something different about the types of visits that patients um, who are minority patients make than, than white patients? Are they presenting with... You know more minor complaints or different types of pain or um, less severe pain, but we didn't really find um, find such differences so so just adjusting for the types of uh, of pain visits that they had and the severity of pain that we had uh, measured, uh, we still found this um, persistent significant disparity in prescribing um, you know we were um i guess still worried uh, about, you know, unmeasured confounders or differences between types of visits. Um, So we focused in on a type of visit that we think, you know, should really be consistently painful um, and consistently should get opiate medications. Um, That is visits in which a doctor has diagnosed a long bone fracture or a kidney stone. And even in those types of visits, we found uh, significant disparities by race and ethnicity. So that's that's really what we found. Um, You know, why I guess why this disparity persists is not entirely clear, and it's something we can only really just speculate about uh, from our findings. I'm interested in hearing uh, what um, our callers uh, think you know could be causing the disparity and and uh in the context of, of what we can do about it and how we can improve quality of prescribing so i guess i would um uh david do you want me to go into some of my thoughts about that or shall we have callers uh um give us their two cents
1: Yeah, Mark, uh, this is David. I think, um, let's go ahead and turn to to callers, but before we do that, uh, i I want to think we will also want to focus during our call a little bit on what the research suggests is about changes in clinical practice changes that both clinicians healthcare professionals and systems might want to consider as well. Um, and so I think in our uh, discussion I'd also like to ask callers to uh, either share with us systems that they have in place that they think may actually help cause this disparity in addition to systems they may be implementing or trying to improve it. So with that, John, let's go ahead and uh, go to the callers and see if we have any questions. Well, and as we're waiting for questions, I guess, uh, Mark Pletcher, do you have any other comments uh, on any of your observations or any of your initial thoughts why this uh, disparity may exist?
2: Well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind um, that, you know, I think we should sort of uh, put out there up front is, you know, is this some is this caused by some sort of frank um, uh, difference in the way that um, the doctors treat patients different by race um, mm-hmm. and I think that's important to to think about and to sort of confront as physicians and uh, make sure that we are you know hearing and interpreting complaints in the same way um, no matter what the patient's race and ethnicity is but I, I, you know, I think I suspect um, that the the cause of the disparity is is more complex than than just um, uh, racial prejudice. Um, I think there are sort of subtleties in communications um, that happen in the emergency department that um, that that make it uh, that sort of induce these these differences because of cultural, you know, differences in the way people communicate about pain.
1: Right. Well, with that that um, thought out there, let's go to John and uh, check if we have any calls in the queue at this
0: time. We do have one question from the Healthcare for the 21st Century. You may go ahead.
3: Yeah, hi. This is Norm Charney, and uh, I was wondering whether you did any studies on the providers as to their biases. I mean, there are some... Uh, tools out there that can determine whether these people had biases concerning different races.
1: Great, Norm, thanks for the question. So to to focus that, it's really about any studies that have been done to try to assess or evaluate provider biases.
2: Mark? Yeah, in our study, of course, we don't have that information. Uh, so we don't have it directly in our study, but there have been studies done on um, you know, how how providers interpret um, uh, complaints of pain from patients of, of different ethnicities, and those results are somewhat mixed. There, There isn't a clear, uh, you know, obvious difference in the way, you know, at least sort of, you know, standard patient uh, recordings um, when done with, with patients of different ethnicities or races. Uh, patients don't obviously interpret um, pain complaints differently. So... It's not clear. It doesn't really give us the answer, at least the research that's been done so far doesn't really give us the answer there.
1: Great. Norm, any follow-up questions? Norm, you still with us? Great. All right. John, any
2: other questions in the queue?
0: We do have one question from Cape Cod Hospital. You may go ahead.
2: Hi, I was wondering if... This is Mike at Cape Cod Hospital. If geography plays a uh, difference... um, predominantly white communities versus um, that of multiple ethnicity yeah uh, that's a good question Um, we have only a little bit of geographical information the way the survey is done uh, it's a sort of cluster random sample of US emergency department visits so we don't have for example you know, we don't know from the survey, we can't subset the survey into, you know, city regions, for example. Uh, but we do have um, urban versus rural emergency um, departments. We can, we can make that distinction. We can also um, look at sort of four basic regions in the country, so the west, the uh, northeast, the south, and the midwest. And we did actually find some interesting um, differences um, by region. So the prescribing, opiate prescribing rates are in general highest in the West, um, and the disparity is the uh, least pronounced in the West. So we didn't really find any significant disparities uh, in the Western region of the U.S., whereas the disparities, the, the opiate prescribing rates are lowest in the Northeast and the disparities were greatest in that area as well. Um, also, um, it looks like urban areas, um, have, um, more significant disparities than, than, uh, non-urban areas.
1: Interesting, Mark. Any, any thoughts as to why?
2: Well, I guess my, at least the urban rural, um, difference I'm guessing is due to, um, the sort of crowded, uh, crazy emergency department um, syndrome that, that is unfortunately the norm these days in, um, in, in cities. So I, I think that problems with prescribing and quality and attention to people's pain and, and all that is probably worse when uh, emergency departments are very busy and, and large. That's my that's my first thought, but this is this is only
1: speculation, yeah. of course. Thank you. Mike, any follow-up questions? Not at this time. John, do we have anybody else in the queue?
0: We have one more caller in the queue. Our next question comes from the University of Arizona. You may go ahead.
4: Um hi, this is Mignon Guy at the University of Arizona. And my question for you is, oftentimes, as in, within research, we often sort of see that um, race and ethnicity and SES are tightly intertwined with patient outcomes and things of this nature. And I'm wondering what sort of thoughts you might have on the, the SES of the patient population served and how, how this may factor into the prescribing patterns of the, of the docs.
1: I'm sorry, and thoughts about the, the which of the patients served?
4: The socioeconomic status of the patient uh,
1: populations. Great. So, Com, questions about the the connection between socioeconomic status and the disparities. Mark?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, you know, we only have we have limited information about SES or socioeconomic status. What we have is patients' insurance type, right? Private or uh, public, basically. Um, and uh you know adjusting for that really made no difference no significant difference in our results and there were differences by race and ethnicity as you would expect um in those insurance types so you know it's a it's a poor proxy of ses but it didn't seem to make much difference at all i i suspect that um i suspect if we had really good data on ses that it would explain part of our results part probably but not all uh, although I don't know for sure. Um, I guess my other, the other important point, though, there is um, I, I, I'm not sure that even if we could explain it with SES, that that would be, um, you know, that we could dismiss it. Um, I, I think disparities, if it's just because um, black patients presenting to the emergency department are more likely to be poor, it doesn't really... Um, you know, it doesn't really help in terms of uh, <laughs> quality of care. That is, it's just as bad to prescribe fewer opiates to a, a poor black person as it is to, a, you know, it, it, it doesn't. It, you know, it's not, um, it's not acceptable to prescribe less, right? It, it, or race.
1: It still raises a quality issue. It would just offer some different insights as to what may be the drivers of it.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, did that answer your question?
4: It definitely answered my question. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Thank you so much for calling in. John, do we have any other calls in the queue at this time?
0: We have another question from the Healthcare for the 21st Century. You may go ahead.
3: Yeah, hi. This Again, this is Norm Charney. Uh, I, I'd be curious to know uh, if anything is being done to study the different perceptions of different ethnic groups as to uh, their evaluation of pain and their stoicism and again, matching what the ethnicity of the doctor and whether he treats those of his same ethnicity in a better manner because he understands how they reflect uh, you know, their, their pain. Uh, and so I think you've got a lot of uh, cultural uh, things happening here that, that create the problem. If you have a white doctor treating a Hispanic or, or a black patient or a Chinese patient, uh, uh you you will get you will get a different reflection depending on how much the physician knows about how these people express their their perception of pain great
1: Sorry. question let me just um clarify that great question norm so really two things in there one have we studied the uh, exp- pain expression behavior in the different cultural or ethnic ethnic groups and mm-hmm. two have we looked at the match or mismatch between the the cultural ethnic background of the patient and the physician right great mark
2: yeah uh Again, great questions. I really think you're getting at um, what I think. My guess, my best guess, is about about where these disparities come from. Um, unfortunately, we don't have um, the physicians' race and ethnicity. That would be very interesting, of course, to look at. Um, I've just in sort of informal, unpublished uh, manner. I've we've talked to another um, researcher who's. Um, you know, been doing work in this area for a long time, Dr. Knox Todd, who um, told me they have some preliminary results uh, that suggest that there may be differences uh, in prescribing by the physician's ethnicity or race and that um, physicians uh, who are of mi- minority ethnicity may be more likely to provide good pain control than uh, than White physicians, and it's actually not the, the interesting part. Was it wasn't um, it wasn't race, race, ethnic discordance between the doctor and the physician. It was actually that minority physicians were better, at least in his data. So all very preliminary, but um, I think there is something there, and I and I really do think um, this has to do with communication uh, between doctors and physicians. Um, so I, I think part of your question, too, was um, about sort of expectations um, of pain control um, by race and ethnicity. I think that also has something to do with with this. Um, there have been some studies on um, control of cancer associated with pain uh, by race and ethnicity, and it, it appears that um, minority patients are sort of, Without education uh, are less likely to expect or know that they can receive good pain control um, than white white patients and with with some education in this area, um, patients um, are more likely to receive um, uh, equal or or good pain control in, in the setting of cancer associated pain so I, I think there may be a role in this setting as well that um, we should educate patients to know that, uh, you know, if they're having um, significant pain and they're during their emergency department visit, they should make sure to tell people about it and and, and keep so, telling them.
1: And there's and there's some evidence, Mark, as you cited to suggest that at least in cancer patients, you're saying so. Patient expectations must may well be a driver. That's right. And that certainly presents an opportunity for improvement. Uh, If you think of the the patient as part of the health care system, is using the patient to leverage that change may be very effective.
2: That's right. I Uh, think that's right. And then we see some parallel work
1: in terms of getting patients to be the drivers on improved physician hand-washing, uh, which has been, you could say, a bit of a cultural change for patients to see that that is their role, um, yet there's been some very good work done and some some high levels of performance using that intervention, so great point.
2: Yeah, um, just to follow up on that also, um, one of my co-authors, Ralph Gonzalez, is an expert in um, in sort of uh, Improving quality of prescribing, and, and his his area of expertise is antibiotics prescribing, and they've had some success with sort of joint education of patients and physicians in the form of you know putting up posters, for example, educating uh, patients about when it's appropriate to uh, to have antibiotics and when it's when it's not, and and I think having that sort of in front of the patient and the physician at the same time um, helps get people sort of literally on the same page about things and helps, helps improve quality. And I think that, that sort of approach might actually be useful in the setting of pain.
1: I think it's a great suggestion for a system improvement because speaking as a primary care physician, you know, when there's a discordance between the patient expectations and the physician expectations about any sort of prescribing, that that creates a lot of stress in the relationship um, and and really tends to get in the way of doing things well. So I think that's a, a wonderful suggestion for a system improvement, and I'm questioning if if any of our listeners or callers uh, know of a system where that kind of patient education happens in the emergency room, either through uh, handouts, posters, or some other kind of patient-directed intervention uh, trying to set patient expectations. So, uh, John, do we have any other callers in the queue at this time?
0: We have a question from Centera Careplex. You may go ahead.
5: Hello, thank you. Um, Sentara CareFlex had actually started looking at variances in treating chest pain across gender, religion, and ethnicity as well as insurance. And we had initially seen some of the findings that you did. One, one point of interest actually for other callers on the line that we learned is first we observed how ED registration is collecting all of this data. and. You may find what we find, which is that they really don't ask you your race when you register, and the only time they ask you your religion is if you're admitted. Typically, even though it's a field at ED registration, it's often either not answered or said none or whatever was there from your previous visit populates. So in other words, a, a person like myself with dark hair and sometimes very dark skin could get registered at one point as a white or another point as a Hispanic. So we found disparities in registration, which actually could be corrected through an education program, though we've not done that piece. So when we'd run the data, and then we'd look back, we'd even have questions as to whether, did we really even correct the race data correctly on this patient? So that's one point of interest. So I I see that you accepted the way the hospitals normally enter that data, et cetera, as part of your study. So that may be one piece of the puzzle. For example, you'll almost never see anybody answer Native American unless the person comes in saying Native American, and they may well be Native American. The second puzzle piece, and thank you, as you taught me maybe this year I'll look at long bone fractures or kidney stones. Yeah, yeah. Um, we did fix our chest pain disparity, so our advice to the callers on the line, how we fixed that is we actually implemented what we call neck to knees. So if you come in and your symptoms are chest pain, cough, shortness of breath, anything neck to knees, you get a cardiogram and that took away our we really had a gender difference in how we treated chest pain and that really did seem to solve that so that's my best advice on that piece for you
1: oh well, so well thank you both for both of those comments you know one really questioning the the accuracy of data that we collect around um both language preference and ethnicity. And, and I think that's a, a challenge throughout our healthcare system, not just in the ED, but certainly in the primary care world. I think we uh, often don't collect that information at all. And thanks for sharing that system improvement. Um, can you just give us a little bit more detail about how you did that? Uh, was that a part of a protocol? And who in the system was responsible for implementing that?
5: Indeed, it is part of a protocol. It's part of our EDE chest pain protocol. Uh, Long before the Door to Balloon Alliance was established, we had set a challenge here to reduce our door to reperfusion time to 90 minutes. And as part of that, we realized, well, the first problem we have is we're not getting EKGs timely. And then we, we realized when we looked at all of our fallouts, wow, a lot of them are women, many of them are older, often diabetics, etc. So that's what really started our journey. And then, of course, last year with IOM publishing one of its aims, Equality, we said that's it, let's take the gloves off and let's look at something this year, and we chose chest pain as our starting point. So that was owned by the ED medical director as well as the ED director. Myself, as an ED clinical nurse specialist, had started the ball. And now I sit in the quality manager role, so that helped add a little extra punch, in other words, I didn't drop the ball just because I moved apartments, <laughs> and, uh, and so we sorted by that piece of it, and, and it was painful, and like I said, our most important learning is if equality really matters to us, we're really going to have to tackle the registration piece because we want good information when we go back and measure the data.
1: Sure, certainly. Well, Well. thank you. I'd like you to stay on the line a minute because I may have a follow-up question for you, but I want to give Dr. Pletcher a, a chance to comment.
2: Well, yeah, I, I think um, it is important to get good information about uh, race and ethnicity, and it, it brings up another um, issue that I think uh, is worth discussing, which is um, quality indicators. Uh, and I, I think currently, my understanding, and this is not... In my area of expertise, but my understanding is that quality information and quality indicators that are tracked regularly currently do not include uh, measures of race and ethnicity. And I, it, that seems to me to be something that we should track on a routine basis and um, keep score, so to speak, because, um, uh, you know, when you measure things, uh, or the first step in trying to improve something is to measure it, of course.
1: Great point, great point, and and I think that is actually true in most of the national quality measures I've seen. I do know that Robert Wood Johnson is currently working on an an outpatient project uh, that actually spans the hospital called the Aligning Forces for Quality that does seek to capture uh, race and ethnicity uh, and language preference along with some of the standard quality measures, but that work is really just starting. So, great point. Um, May I ask our caller one more follow-up question, and that is, as you think now about um, our challenge in managing pain in the emergency department, in addition to simply improving the data capture accuracy, uh, wearing your your QI hat and your nurse uh, uh, clinician specialist hat, do you have any thoughts about systems that we may want to implement in the ED to address the disparity that was highlighted by Dr. Pletcher's work?
5: Actually, I do. And, I, of course, I have a bad hunch that I think our data would probably be similar here as well. I think the first thing I would do is start to take a look at staff bias, that part of the part of the correction to this is teaching staff that they may be biased in their approach to care. I think a second piece is standardizing some of the protocols and perhaps we can look at kidney stones or lung bone fracture as one of them within the ED in terms of pain management, that perhaps we can focus on at least those two pieces of the puzzle to start with. and As part of that rollout, I think people would really learn that perhaps I'm prescribing differently or Maybe I'm interpreting the patient's pain differently. And you're right, I, I sit here and wonder if we even have appropriate pain scales in other languages for a patient whose primary language may not be English to look at the 1 to 10 scale, et cetera. Yeah, no, I know. I... That would be three start-off points.
1: Great. Well, thank you for those suggestions, and I really appreciate your call. Uh, Dr. Pletcher, any more comments before we go on to our next caller?
2: Uh, you just a quick one. I think there are pain scales uh, that are sort of, um, you know, the happy and sad face uh, type uh, visual scales that can be used. Of course, uh, so, non-language specific
1: not language-specific, but but also I I think the point our caller made, which is a great one, is that uh, some tools that are specific to culture and language uh, would be very important. And if anyone out there knows of those, that would be great, uh, because even that that happy, sad face, even though it doesn't require uh, specific language capability, uh, that may have very different meanings in different cultures. That's true, too. So, but great point.
2: Uh, the other, I guess, the, yeah. one more point, if you, if I could. Please. Um, the um, I, I think another key to uh, to improving quality of pain control is um, to measure it not just on intake, but also later during the visit. Exactly. Uh, and I don't think that's part of any sort of JCO um, guidelines at this point. So- um so I think I think that should be part of sort of routine uh, care is to to measure measure pain later and make sure that it's gotten better.
1: No, I think that's a great point, and and your your article did did great work in looking at what you could get, which was was were narcotics or were opiates administered. But that's a great question: is did we actually achieve adequate pain control, which is that's really right. the desired outcome?
2: So that's right. there, there could, in fact, be. Uh, even more significant uh, disparities in in how how the quantity of opiates prescribed and the the level of pain control achieved.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, great. Well, thank you. And, again, to any of our callers, if you have examples either of tools you're using, of protocols you've got in place uh, that you think either are or have the potential to help address this, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, John, can we have our next question, please?
6: Our next question comes from Cerner. You may go ahead. Hi. Yes, my name's Erica Jones, and I'm a nurse. And um, I guess one of my questions uh, was, did nurses play a, a role in communicating or advocating for for the patients at all in any of your in your results? I know you you looked at a controlled study, and I don't know that you had that detailed of data. And um, also, I, I'm very interested in um, kind of what what she was talking about with the the chest pains and things. Um, just just the whole do 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 patients know that when they go into the emergency room and they say that they have pain that they should should actually have an expectation that that pain be addressed um, doesn't really matter what um, ethnicity you are or or kind of what you what i mean I guess I've had some recent experiences where I've gone into the emergency room in in a lot of pain um, and I was just amazed that even. Speaking that to a nurse, speaking that to the physician, I had people wanting to take me for exams and things before they even addressed my pain. Um, and I'm a nurse, and I'm well-educated, um, and so I guess I feel like we've just kind of missed the whole the whole boat there, and that needs to next seems to, to make some sense to me. So I guess I wondered, yeah. did nurses play any part in that, or could they have spoken or advocated more for the physician? Because in my case... The nurse heard me, but it seemed like she had a lot of other things she was busy doing.
1: Great, Erica. Thank you for your question. So two very good questions. What do we know about the nurse role in assessing and advocating for adequate pain treatment? And two, your observation that uh, in, in spite of maybe in addition to disparities, we've got a long way to go in terms of adec- adequately responding to pain in um, white patients to present to the ER. Dr. Pletcher? Uh,
2: both, both good questions. I, you know, we don't have uh, detailed information about, you know, what the role of the nurse was in any given uh, visit in our in our study, but I, I think that's a great point in that uh, nurses do play a, a pivotal role in um, which patients uh, actually receive uh, pain medication, and doctors, you know, write the order, but nurses, um, you know, decide if it's a PRN order, for example, when to give the medication and sometimes if to give it. Um, so I, th- I think the nurse, you know, and the doctor uh, in general need to be um, really uh, involved in, in the solution here. Um, I, I, You know, I do think I, uh, there's some data on giving nurses more autonomy to uh, and sort of routinize um, or, or lower the barriers for getting a patient pain medication by giving the nurse more autonomy to actually prescribe via standard orders and, and that sort of thing. And I think that, that sort of systematic change might be useful as well.
1: And, uh, Dr. Pletcher, I would agree in my observations, and these do not come from the ED per se, but one of the ways to increase the reliability of any system, uh, with all due respect, is to take the duty uh, when it's safe out of the doctor's hands and right. to another member of the healthcare team. Yeah. And, and I don't mean this as a criticism of physicians, uh, but I think often we are managing so many things Uh, and trying to keep track of so many things that some of those um, perhaps less compelling or or less frightening things, we will sort of put a ways down on the list of our attention. So I do think delegating to nurses is a a great idea. So again, Erica, thank you for your call. Uh, John, do we have any other callers?
0: Our next question comes from Health Net Federal Services. You may go ahead. Uh, Hi, Dr. Pletcher. This is Darlene with Health Net Federal
7: Services. My question is, was there any evaluation of the consistency of, the, excuse me, the emergency department assessment of pain, like for example do most, some of this has been touched on already, do most use the one through ten scale or the little happy faces and painful faces? Um, because especially with non-native speaking patient non-English speaking patients, uh, my experience in working with a large Hispanic population was that they were often embarrassed to admit that they didn't really understand the question, and so there would be a lot of yes, no, and then if you asked them to re- repeat it, they really couldn't because, you know, as I said, they were too embarrassed. So was there consistency in, you know, evaluating uh, verbally and nonverbally, I guess, the, the um, levels of pain?
2: Uh, good question, and we have um, we have this measure of severity of pain from uh, about half of our survey years uh, that comes i think from this sort of triage uh, question about uh, that that, that uh, is currently being used you know what what level of pain do you have and just um, i haven 't actually focused on this, but we do have um, we do know that um, about a third of patients this is um about a third of patients during those survey years um have unknown uh, as their level of pain, which you know I don't you know probably that's somewhat more complex, but it's probably at least partially due to you know not not asking the question or not really assessing pain adequately up front so, so we, I think there is some room for improvement there, I guess is the answer.
1: Yeah, so even during the years when there was a quantitative method used, um, fully a third of the patients didn't have any quantitative measures of pain. And and any comments on on Darlene's other question is, um, you know, again, the challenge of or the question of are we accurately assessing pain in the first place um, in non-native English speakers and people from other cultures um, when they may or may not even be understanding the question? did you Did you get any insight into that uh through your work?
2: No, I don't think we can really get at that um, i I can see that um there's a maybe a slight difference in this unknown proportion there's thirty seven percent of Asian others versus thirty three percent of whites don't have a pain severity score, so maybe that's a small indicator but i I don't think we really know. I guess, what the quality of that pain assessment is in general. And I think it it could well vary by language or culture, et cetera.
1: Great. Thank you, Mark. John, next question, please.
0: Our next question comes from the University of Arizona. You may go ahead.
4: Um, Hi. I'm not sure if this is as much of a question. Well, there's a question but also a comment here. That's fine. It it seems to me that... um, there are an awful lot of factors that can sort of be, that are involved in, in this particular case, as well as, mold. it's so interwoven. But one of the things that I, I'm i working on here in Arizona with our Medicaid system um, are developing clinical decision support tools for providers as well as patient decision, decision support tools. And because, one of the things that's sort of going through my head as I'm listening to this is, you know, well, we should educate the patients. We should educate the patients. And then we think about the onus that's upon the providers and sort of to imagine them to code switch based on each, you know, cultural group that they encounter is is pretty, um, given their other responsibilities, might might be borderline unreasonable or unreasonable or just sort of the expectations may be too high, but perhaps those of us that are beginning to implement these clinical decision support tools and patient decision support tools may want to start considering issues such as this to incorporate, to sort of ease that burden on, on the provider so much. And as well as when we're thinking about these patient decision support tools, um, my, my concern about educating patients is that, we we can we can feed as much information as we want to to individuals, um, and unless we make it useful to them and accessible to them, it, you know it may be all for now in the end. So I suppose we we sort of have to think about this is more of a systems approach I suppose, but I suppose we need to begin to think about how we can link what we're doing with with these these decision support tools tools overall to begin to to try to alleviate or mitigate some of these issues and perhaps then revisit this issue of the disparities in this area.
1: Wow, that's a great comment, and let me just pull that together before we ask Dr. Pletcher to comment. Uh, your first point, which I think is a very, very good one, is that um, expecting providers to be able to code switch, if you will, as they go from one uh, Patient language preference or ethnic group to another probably is unreasonable, and I think if you asked uh, most providers in practice, uh, they would agree that that 's quite a stretch
2: at best um, and, and sorry, could you just clarify code switch is that what you
1: i 'm yeah. sorry
4: the linguistics terms so i 'm going back into my other field again <laughs> it's just it 's when you're speaking when you 're when you're changing your your um, your functioning of your language, or you're using different language to, not necessarily specific languages, but you're, you're using different linguistics in order to communicate with various groups.
1: So, so in a non-healthcare environment, it would be the way your teenager talks to his peers, uh, and then they walk into the classroom and they use a very different set of language to speak with the teacher or the principal.
4: Exactly, exactly. Good, thank
1: you. Yeah. So, 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 but I, I like that comment. And then your second comment is that you know, decision support tools, which we're now developing for providers, perhaps we should be thinking about effective decision support tools for patients around. Um, you know, their own decisions for expressing their pain. So right. two great points, Dr. Pletcher.
2: Well, decision <laughs> support tools, I think, you know, that's an interesting point, and I haven't really thought through how that would work for patients. Um, you know, how, how they are making a, I guess, I guess helping them make a conscious decision about, you know, whether or not to press for pain medication or to to really request you know better pain control uh is something that that might be useful for them to uh to get help with in a systematic way
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea, and I'm actually curious how um, any any ED providers out there would feel if, if their organization began um, not only educating but actually giving patients tools to be more effective at advocating for uh, opiate analgesics. I'm wondering how that would play with the provider community out there. Uh, that may or may not be well received.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm interested in general if there are any ED docs out there that have thoughts about, um, you know, the barriers to prescribing and and, and why this? I, you know, I, I guess to, just to bring up explicitly what I, I think might be worth discussing is, is the fear of um, abuse of opiates, and I think that really drives some of the reluctance of physicians to prescribe.
1: Yeah, so, so good question. Is, is that one of the fears um, that any clinicians out there are aware of? And I guess the second follow-on question, is there any evidence to support that? So, uh, any, uh, any, any. Do you have any experience? I'd like to ask the caller. Um, do you have any decision support tools that you've developed for patients uh, to help them uh, know how to uh, manage their own pain within the ED?
4: I'm in the thick of it right now. <laughs> Wonderful. We're actually in the process of developing with, we just received one of the state um, um, Medicaid uh, grants from CMS, and, and that's what I've been charged with, is creating the, the patient decision support tools. But my my take is really it's dr- being driven more by the patients than by the researchers, because that's, I believe that that's the only way you're going to make them effective, really. We can, as I said, we can sort of, pan out as much information as we want to from an academic or, or medical or whatever perspective. However, if it's not accessible to the patient, so it needs to be driven by the patient, then we go from there. But this is one of the components I intend to include in, in mine.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for your call. Uh, John, can we go on to the next caller, please?
0: Our next question comes from the Visiting Nurse Center of New York. You may go ahead.
8: Hi, this is Ashley Hammars from the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Um, I found the study really interesting and I've uh, worked in pain management and specifically uh, with minority communities before. Um, I'm actually curious from an institutional perspective what you hope your own institution might do in light of your research. Uh, it doesn't sound like you have, I don't know, but it doesn't sound like you have institution-specific data for your home institution. and sort of where you think emergency rooms should start, um, because it seems to me that we can talk a lot about patient education and getting patients to be their own advocates, but I really think that if a system isn't looking at this as an important um, obstacle to be overcome, and if they don't have data on how their own clinicians perform, you know, you're you're really putting a lot of onus on people who are coming someplace when they're in a crisis, and um you know, probably aren't in the best positions to advocate for themselves.
2: Great
1: observation, Dr. Pletcher.
2: Yeah, I I, I really agree with you. Um, we actually have a little bit of information locally here. Um, Mike Cohn, who's one of our other co-authors, um, did a study looking at long bone fracture at San Francisco General Hospital, and did not find any significant disparities in, in opiate prescribing in that. Particular setting, but uh, uh, obviously a local uh, study. But um, you know, I, I really think the caller right, is right that we need to measure this. We need to we need to measure pain not just in the beginning, but uh, you know, throughout the visit, and make sure that we are um, we're we're treating it adequately um, and keeping track of it. Measuring things uh, is really the only way to tell that we're doing better and to, and to really induce a change. I think.
1: Great, uh, great point. That you know um, how many of our EDs are actually measuring this particular quality measure uh, at all, let alone looking at it across racial and ethnic and language uh, categories. So great, great point. Um, I think we've got time for one more call.
0: Uh, John, go ahead, please.
9: Our next question
0: comes from V Caribbean Healthcare. You may go ahead.
9: Hi, uh, my name is Ramona Mercado, and uh, I have been listening to a lot of speculation about the lack of understanding of a pain scale. Uh, I more tend to lead more to the consideration of uh, the, pay, the person's tolerance to pain. If this was considered, and also if actually I believe you mentioned something about a percentage of pain scale that were only taken like on the Latinos and the whites, uh, but I didn't hear exactly the number. I don't know if you say 33% and 37% on, on, on whites. This, I believe, could be more of, a, of, of the reason why the pain uh, was treated differently. Uh, I would like to please repeat that for me.
1: Great. Thank you so much for the question. So first is an opinion that it may simply be pain tolerance uh, differences that is driving some of the disparities that we're measuring, and then request for some clarification of some of the measurements on the pain scale.
9: That's right.
2: Yeah, the pain tolerance, I'm not aware of any um, research showing that pain tolerance actually just differs systematically by race and ethnicity. That may be out there, but I don't think it. that is... Known or, or been shown, um, and just to remind you, all these patients did actually complain of pain uh, as one of the reasons for visiting the emergency department. So they all have pain that they're they're noting to the to somebody. Um, and in terms of differences um, in interpretation of the pain scale, that I, I really I don't I can't really know for sure, but I suspect you're right. I suspect there are some differences in how um, patients. Interpret that pain scale by by race and ethnicity. Did that address your question?
9: In a way, I believe he mentioned something that there was a percentage of uh, pain scales that were not uh, in record.
2: Yes, yes. Let me let me sorry. Let me clarify that. So, during the years when we had this pain severity measurement, um, we still had about a third of patients with no pain score measurement. Okay. So, and I think that's probably at least partially due to either not asking or patients not understanding questions. And that differed a little bit by ethnicity. There was uh, 33% of whites had this unknown level. Um, Let's see, 34% of blacks, 35% of Hispanics, and 37% of Asian and others. Great. Those small differences. Okay.
1: okay. Well, thank you so much for your question. Um, and that is, unfortunately, all the time we have for questions. It's been a wonderful discussion of the issues, and I want to thank all of you who called in with questions um, and called in with, really, your solutions and your thoughts. And that's what makes this call, I think, very, very productive. Uh, Dr. Pletcher, I want to ask or invite you, if you have any closing thoughts or comments.
2: No, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of the um the the key um, aspects here to how we might approach um, um, you know improving quality of pain control and I think measurement is a key that is measuring pain uh, consistently at the beginning and also throughout the visit and making sure it's getting better measuring race and ethnicity and reporting quality indicators um, stratified by race and ethnicity to, to see how we're doing on disparities um, and I think um, education, educating um, educating patients um, about expectations of pain control, and how they can communicate uh, effectively, uh, perhaps providing decision support uh, is an interesting idea, and educating physicians um, about um, the the obviously the need to uh, treat everybody equally, uh, but perhaps more importantly um, and more subtly, about how patients uh, express pain differently by race and ethnicity and how to um, improve systems to lower the barriers to um, giving good pain control.
1: Well, great, Um, and I'd like to thank you, Dr. Pletcher, for your participation on the call today and for really uh, giving us such an enlightening discussion. Uh, In closing, I'd like to remind you that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on March 19th. Our featured guest is Dr. Stephen Shortell, who will be discussing his article, Improving Patient Safety by by Taking Systems Seriously. Uh, Sponsored uh, by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of the call. Thanks to you, Dr. Pletcher, and have a good day.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating.